Christ, there had to be another way out of that. A new holiday was born. A festivus for the rest of us. This new holiday of yours is scratching me right where I itch. Let's do it then. All right. Festivus is back. Ladies and gentlemen, are you no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. And really, that goes uh, without saying, especially on tonight's program. For the first time ever, we're doing this one live. Hopefully it runs smoothly. It is the 12th annual BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. He is uh, a legend. He's my hero in a lot of ways. I've said it a million times on this show. If I wasn't doing this show, it it wouldn't be with him because he... He uh, gave me my very first interview, so I was like, that started all this. (laughs) So I hold him very, very dear to my heart, and that's why we have the holiday special, and it's unbelievable. It's been 12 years we've been doing this, Dan. It's just absolutely crazy, and uh, it's one of the signature programs uh, in this whole, you know, in the series here. So thank you so much for being a part of it. Thank you for coming back. Welcome uh, back to the show. Happy holidays. I'm excited. Uh, It's the holiday season finally once again. Uh, Welcome back, buddy. Well, glad to be here again. I'm glad to be still alive. What the heck? <laughs> hey, man, you got to be there for the 70th at least, and hopefully the 75th and more and more of those big anniversaries. But uh, well, we'll talk about that in a little bit because uh, it should be exciting. I might try and make it out this year for the 70th, so we'll see. Uh, I'm talking about Roswell, of course, but yes. I figured they know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, tell me first, you got a new book that came out. We want to tell people about this because uh, – you still got yeah. four or five shopping days till Christmas, and I'm sure it's in the Barnes and Nobles and the uh, oh yeah whatever books Amazon and yeah. all that yeah I think they're still Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about the new book and uh, okay and give me a little thumbnail uh, on it. The the book is Fact Fiction and Flying Saucers by Kathleen Marden and myself. This is our third book together, and it's different from the other ones. Um, you know, there are a lot of UFO books. Every time I turn around, I see a new one. I haven't read them all, but uh, I'll try to get to most of them. But we decided that there was really a need for stepping back a little bit and saying, so how come sensible, thinking, smart people have said such dumb things about flying saucers? I'm thinking of the nasty, noisy negativists, as I call them, uh, people like Phil Klass or Ed Condon or Donald Menzel. 
And, you know, these aren't idiots. Uh, And so what we've done is we've gone to the archives. uh, Their papers are at the American Philosophical Society Library, for example, and I've been to 20 archives altogether. Kathy's been to a number of them. Um, To try to sort out what's going on here, and we finally realized that there are connections between these people that weren't obvious at all, and that they all, the three have in common, that the irrationality, the clear, obvious, not derived from facts, statements that these guys have made over the years. I mean, I'm a nuclear physicist. Okay, Ed Condon was a very smart physicist. He was uh, he was admitted, uh, invited to become part of the National Academy of Sciences in his 40s. He was elected president of the American Physical Society one year and president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. This isn't a dink. Very smart guy. Yeah. Pumps a lot of papers, all that sort of thing. So how could he say things like, it seems clear that there won't be any visitors to Earth by aliens for the next 10,000 years. You know, I wouldn't take bets on 50 years from now. Why? How could he possibly say 10,000? Uh, Donald Menzel uh, has been attacking UFO reality, tried to convince the Air Force they ought to let him identify all their cases because they all had prosaic explanations. They didn't buy it, fortunately. Phil Klass and I have tangled a great deal for the last 20 years of his life, or more than that, I guess. And he's a good writer for, was a good writer for Aviation Week and Space Technology. How could he say all the dumb things that he said about flying saucers? I mean, (laughs) you know, you know that he paid me $1,000 for proving him wrong about something that. He had no business even suggesting was true. Uh, He'd never been to the Eisenhower Library, and he challenged me that a certain document related to MJ-12 was done on the wrong kind of type. It was a large PICA type, but the National Security Council, which supposedly was responsible for this, only used elite type, and he had 10 samples to prove that, and he'd give me $100 each for every genuine memo, and he had a number of conditions done in the same size and style type. Now, the reason this is outrageous is he had never been, I checked twice, to the Eisenhower Library. They got 250,000 pages of National Security Council material. How could anybody dare to make such a, a challenge? He probably he didn't think he'd me. bother. He, he probably didn't think he'd bother, and then he could... Uh... You know, then he could crow about it. Well, I uh, suppose. Chuck was on him. Uh, uh, yeah, he paid me. And he got madder than heck when I, I published a copy of his check in a book. Nice. Threatened, threatened to sue me, you know, for. And I had taken off and blacked out the banking information, you know. So oh, that's good, yeah. <laughs> I was a good guy, but. Uh, and I told him, uh, you know, Phil, you sent me a check. I Xeroxed it. I took the check to the bank. They cashed it. I could do whatever I please with the Xerox. And then he shut up. But the, these guys were all too... I mean, you know, Menzel was not just an astronomer. He was chairman of the astronomy department, also a member of the National Academy of Sciences. Well, I found out the answer about... a clear-cut, unambiguous answer about Menzel uh, 
uh, I'd seen, I was looking, looking, trying to find out more about this ostensible MJ-12 group, which didn't make any sense because Menzel's name was on it as a member. How could a guy who'd written three anti-UFO books, the king of the debunkers in the 50s and 60s. Right, right. This is how you discovered the... How how you discovered that he had all these clearances? Now let me ask, let me sort of jump ahead because yeah. we, we've covered these we've we've done these a million okay. times. People love these stories, but you know, uh, they'll give me grief because I don't because <laughs> I oh, like okay. them. <laughs> um, so so what did you kind of did you come to some sort of conclusion that these people that maybe these these most outspoken people are you saying or you, or you, I don't want to put words in your mouth because I haven't read the book yet. So, but are you, are you sort of like postulating that perhaps they were doing this? With less than honorable intentions, let's say? Yes. Well, it, it's more than that. That They clearly uh, were doing it for somebody or some movement or whatever you want to call it. There was a purpose here. It wasn't random. Right. Uh, that there was a, a movement afoot, in other words. Mm. Uh, and, you know, at least with Menzel, we know who he worked for, uh, National Security Agency, among others, CIA also, and stuff. But uh, why was Condon uh, taking this attitude? Class. Now, I happen to know that Aviation Week and Space Technology, which employed Class for many years, fired somebody when they found out he had a connection with the CIA. You remember the Church Committee and those hundreds of Mm -hmm. journalists, supposedly objective seekers of truth, had a straight connection with the CIA. (laughs) And in many cases, their employers knew about it, Uh, which came as a great shock to the American public, of course, because you don't expect the public, the uh, press, to be working for the CIA. God knows what's going on now, yeah. Yeah, uh, and uh, look, it didn't surprise me because in an intelligence project that I did in the early 60s, mind you, looking at uh, Soviet capabilities with regard to building nuclear systems for space, I visited archives that had loads of uh, Soviet information in them, but also reports from people who were traveling and attended meetings and were reporting back to the CIA on what happened at those meetings. These guys weren't employees of the CIA, but they uh, made nice, you know. And so that's your patriotic duty, I suppose, if somebody asks you from the government, uh, hey, you're going to be at this meeting, and we'd sure like to know what's going on, and you're qualified to be there. We're not, so give us a hand. I mean, I can understand that. But these three guys, uh, like I say, with Menzel, it's easy to understand. I didn't like him when I didn't know that he had worked for the NSA for 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with class... Uh, he did so much to try to discredit people, and some of it very much behind the scenes. Right, right. You know, why would he write a letter to the FBI about Heineck? Yeah, he's very cloak and dagger, which is in keeping with the idea that he was, you know, doing this at the behest of somebody, that there was there yeah. was something going on there. That Yeah. Why did he write that nasty letter about me to the Canadian government? What a strange thing to do, you know, mm. warning them that I would be moving to the USO and you uh, from the USA to Canada, and that uh, I would be saying that there was a cosmic Watergate and all kinds of other stuff. Well, why would he do that? What benefit to him? You know, it sounds like something he's doing for somebody else. Right. And so, 
we concluded at least that there were uh, there was ample evidence of collusion, if you will. We found correspondence to class from both Condon and Menzel, uh, and certainly uh, Condon and Menzel were buddies, if you will, fishing buddies, among other things. And so we got to understand. Now, I can't prove to you that uh, Condon knew that Menzel worked for the NSA for 30 years. Right, right, you know. exactly. It's just, but uh, yeah, it's very suggestive of something like that. Or, or I hate to suggest this; it sounds too cons- conspirational. But uh, Condon had had plenty of troubles with the government about security uh, in some of his earlier jobs in the fifties and so forth. Maybe they knew something about him that they put the gun to his head and said, "Ed." Here's what you've got to do now, mm. and if you do, uh, we won't say anything to you about this other thing. Well, I, mean, I say that only because we found in the FBI files on class that on two occasions he had leaked classified material, and they wanted to pursue him for that. Oh boy, that's a violation of law. I've heard, and, and they <laughs> couldn't get the stuff uh, declassified, so they could pursue him. So. You know, he he got away with it, uh, and so I, the the whole point is to explore the relationship amongst the three people. Yeah, yeah. And nobody else has really looked at this question of what's going on with the nasty, noisy negativists, as I call them politely. You know? Right, uh, right. Yeah. Well, the the yeah, because it seems very strange in the. It definitely seems like they were working at the behest of somebody. I mean, everyone's always kind of said that. So it's like your book actually puts it all together and tries to tries to get to the bottom of it. Is there any, do you think there's any – I mean, as so much time has passed, and you know, we talk about the Roswell thing, do you think there's any way we'll ever get sort of any more information, or are we already sort of plumbed the depths of all the files and stuff we could get on these guys? Well, I, I think there may still – I mean, look, Roswell happened 70 years ago coming up uh, – so there can't be too many guys alive who were part and parcel of that. But I'm hoping that maybe somebody will find letters from a father or grandfather. Right. You know, uh, we'll find some piece of paper somewhere that people do find things like that. Hey, look what I found. <laughs> right, right. The Roswell papers sort of pushing that uh, uh, sort of idea, right? That's, that's what I heard recently. Well, yeah. Uh, and... You know, I'm not. I don't know whether that's going to happen or not. Uh, as, as you know, I have staunchly said that governments can keep secrets, and I am not saying everything should be declassified. I think there are some serious national security issues here. Uh, the obvious one being, if we've learned something about the technology of these alien visitor craft, uh, why should we put it out on the table if the Russians and Chinese don't put out what they've learned? You know, right, uh, right. That doesn't make sense to me. I was a, a a good soldier for 14 years working under security, and I take it very seriously. That doesn't mean I don't think the public is entitled to know that the planet's being visited. After all, I've been saying that in public lectures since 1967. But uh, I'm not saying everything should be released. And I think uh, there are some people in the disclosure movement who are saying that, and I just don't buy it. Right, right. That's just well. I, as I was saying to you when we set up the interview, I feel like this disclosure movement's uh, hit the wall 
because they put all their eggs in the Hillary Clinton basket and uh, they have no <laughs> yes. no plan whatsoever for the Donald Trump uh, administration. And, and no plan B. Yeah. And, you know, people ask me about Trump and security and stuff. And I will first off admit I'm not a fan of his. Second of all, as somebody who had a clearance for 14 years, I have difficulty believing that he'd be willing to shut up uh, for anybody. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You know, I wouldn't trust him with classified information because I don't trust him to do anything other than what he feels like doing. Well, here's the thing. On a human on a human level, it's also, I was saying this to somebody the other day, it's um, if they tell him about anything like related to UFOs or aliens or anything like that revelatory, you know he's not going to be able to help himself and he'll tell his kids because those that family seems so so tight-knit, you know? So then all of a sudden it's getting, you know, and the people who tell him this information must know that, too. You know? Like, well, I'm sure Obama that's, didn't that's tell right. his kids whatever, whatever he got told well, about aliens. <laughs> you can't tell your friends without telling your enemies, or relatives <laughs> without telling your enemies. Uh, and so I, I, have, I have no idea what's going to happen. And I wish to strenuously express the view that presidents don't have access to everything. Right, right. Because they meet with the press all the time, and they might inadvertently release something that seems innocent, but that gives a spy uh, information that he otherwise wouldn't have gotten. You know, and tells tells what corner of the desk to look under. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but you're right. It's like, they, yeah. It's that, that that explains in a lot of ways the need to know thing, and I never really considered where it's like just knowing you might by accident accident tell people or something. So, yeah. Well, that's right. That's why I still get people telling me that well, if somebody's got a top secret clearance, he gets access to all top secret information. No way. That's not the way it works. That's why that need to know thing is there. Uh, the the. The proof that you can't do that is the requirement for a need to know before getting access to highly classified yeah. material. So, uh, you know, these are interesting times That's uh, sure. about such things, uh, especially with this transition coming up. And Lord knows what it's going to be like in the next six months. Yeah. Have you been following this story about the fake news thing? Well, I've I've heard bits and pieces about it, and it does concern me because uh, if the media isn't doing its job and getting facts in hand before putting mouth in gear, we're all in trouble. Well, it's it, well. Let me put it this way: I, I I agree with you on that. Believe me, but it's uh, there's, I think I feel like there's a lot of layers going on here. I'm worried that the the paranormal is going to be. Uh, and especially UFOs and other other uh, you know high profile topics are going to be like swept into this into this uh, yes. this net. And I, I want to read you something. This is what a skeptic wrote. Uh, an article uh, asked for uh, insight from a skeptic. I'm not going to name this person because it doesn't not worth my time. But they say the origins of fake news go back to the 1950s when UFO newsletters from organizations like APRO reported on alien abductions and government cover-ups, which led to Long John Nebel, who then began the fake news phenomenon. Which what? To me... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Is that not the most asinine, stupid, yes. historically incorrect thing you could possibly say? It's just yes. 
mind-boggling. That's from a skeptic. I'll, I'll email you her, uh, this person's name. <laughs> but, Is that person a journalist? Uh, they are billed as a science writer and editor who reports on fake news, pseudoscience, and conspiracy theories. Oh, my theories. goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that was yeah, a, that's a pretty dream. absurd. Yeah, that's, that's, thank It's you. historically gross, uh, you know. Uh, That's, and yeah. I was a member of APRO, and I can say that as an insider, if you will. They're the ones who asked me to talk to Marjorie Fish, for example, about the Betty Hill Star map and, and stuff like that. Uh, so I was on their list of good guys, if you will. And uh, uh, It's nonsense. Yeah. But there's a lot of nonsense around. <laughs> right, exactly. Just like, uh, you know, we don't need people spreading that kind of crap because it's so incorrect that we're like it's like yeah blame all this on ufos that's insane um <laughs> that's funny yeah well it's tragic but it's funny yeah it's sad that somebody it, it's not only sad that somebody's so wrong about it but that someone else you know like i said like you were saying take get, get your facts in hand it's like that this counts as journalism these days this is what this person got from a so-called expert are you kidding me um well the Must new book kidding you <laughs> yeah what's that I say, they must be kidding you. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Uh, the new book, once again, for folks, uh, is uh, Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers. And I'm looking at it right now on Amazon. You can add it to your cart right this very minute. So do that. And uh, <laughs> if you want to do some listener questions, we got a slew of them. So Sure, why not? All right. It's that time of year. You know how it is. Yeah. All right. Let me see here. Let me get this thing up. All right. Uh Tim, not me, but some other Tim. Tim in Trenton, New Jersey, he wants to know your opinion on uh, these two books, UFOs, Yes, by David Saunders, and Aliens in the Skies by John G. Fuller. He says they both take well-deserved swipes at Condon and the the, uh, Colorado Committee, and he notes that Saunders was fired from the committee and that you own the final chapter of Aliens in the Skies. So you you must have uh, really impressed him there. But uh, what what are your thoughts on those books? Well, yeah, I like Saunders' books, and uh, he didn't give a satisfactory answer to the question why the heck did Condon take the approach he did, but he certainly established that it was irrational. Uh, He was not investigating UFO sightings uh, and so forth and so on. So I've I've met, uh, well, I presume he's not with us anymore. I don't know that for a fact, but... uh, when I tried to find him, I think I discovered that he was deceased. And if John is, uh, <laughs> if he's still alive and listening, uh, tell him to correct me. <laughs> uh, the aliens in the skies. The the one thing that disappointed me there was that he left out all the references that were in my papers, uh, in my my congressional testimony. He does present testimony, but without the references. And I, part of my uh, efforts are to try to encourage people, justify the claims that you make. Give us facts. Give us a reference. Uh, yeah. It's my argument with Carl Sagan. You know, we're classmates. I respect his scientific background, et cetera. But he made claims that had no basis in fact, and he made no attempt. He said there are interesting sightings that aren't reliable, and there are reliable sightings that aren't interesting, and I don't disagree with those two things. And then he says there are no interesting and reliable sightings. Based on what? The largest study ever done showed exactly the opposite. You know, the more reliable the sighting, the more likely it was unexplainable. That's consistent with 
sightings being good, not bad. Uh, so I like to see references. And so that was my one concern about John uh, in, in that book, that he didn't include references. But uh, it, it was a pretty good book. I don't think, uh, well, I don't know how well it sold. Uh, but uh, he included a lot of good stuff in it. Mm. All right. Uh, Lobo Mateus, who I believe interviewed you uh, on his show, Project Archivist, uh, earlier this year, he wants to know if you can expound upon your earlier research and development of nuclear power being used in everyday items like automobiles and planes. Well, okay, those are two separate. (laughs) Automobiles and planes aren't the same thing. I have no reason to think that nuclear power can be used in automobiles. I realize that umpteen years ago, People were saying, you know, we'll have nuclear-powered automobiles. I've never bought it then, and I don't buy it now. Now, airplanes is another matter. I worked at General Electric Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department in, just outside Cincinnati from 1956 to 1959. It was a big program. I worked on radiation shielding because that's a major problem for nuclear airplanes because uh, you don't want to cook the pilots. Uh, not a good <laughs> idea, you know. So uh, it was a big program. We spent $100 million in 1958, that one year. Wow. We spent $100 million. And that was a lot of money back then. Yeah. You know, you know now it's chicken feed. Uh, well, not to me or you. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but we also employed 3,500 people, of whom 1,100 were engineers and scientists. And we did a lot of work on all aspects of the problem, but... Uh, for political reasons, it was basically canceled uh, when the Eisenhower administration took over. And I, I predicted that. I left the program late in 1959. And I told people when I left that I'm not sure there's going to be an ANP here in a year or two. It was canceled 16 months later. Ah, yeah. Uh, because I saw no – GE had nothing – Involved, they owned the rug on the boss's floor. Mm, yeah, <laughs> that's about it. Yeah, it was cost recovery, you know, uh, cost plus uh, program. Uh, you get a certain percentage on the amount of money you bill, but it wasn't a trivial program. We did successfully operate jet engines on nuclear power, but it wasn't in an airplane. Um, and you know, the people say, well, "Why would you do that in the first place?" Well. The reason is pretty obvious when you think about it. If you can fly for thousands of hours without refueling, uh, that would be kind of neat, wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And the the analog, incidentally, is the nuclear Navy. Uh, Rickover was quite successful. Hyman Rickover ran the Naval Nuclear Reactors Program. And they developed submarines that could go around the world underwater without refueling. Now, people don't realize it, I suppose, but in World War II, the German U-boats, you know, uh, they were such a threat, they sank a lot of ships. Oh, yeah. Uh, they could only stay under for about a day because they needed air for the diesel engines. Uh, but when you have a nuclear-powered submarine, knows, nobody knows where it is. So mutually assured destruction, you know. If if the Russians were to attack us, they know that the submarines, which are wherever they are, but we don't know where they are, uh, could retaliate with 
uh, missiles, Polaris and so forth missiles, that had nuclear warheads on them. Mm. So maybe it's not a good idea for us to attack them. Uh, and also, the other parallel with the Navy is that we have nuclear-powered aircraft carriers that can operate for 18 years without refueling. Now, that gives a sea captain of one of these things incredible versatility. You know, the Navy is normally restricted by, if it's not nuclear, you got to get fuel for the damn ships. You know? Do the other countries that, did like China and Russia, have that capability? I think, uh, I think so, but I'm, I'm not sure. But yeah. uh, I, I think so. They, I haven't been on board one. I haven't been <laughs> on ours either. But I know we have them. Uh, but what, I, what I'm saying is, certainly people were impressed with the fact that the nuclear navy was so successful, and so maybe we can use. Uh, nuclear-powered airplanes. As a matter of fact, there was a program to develop uh, nuclear-powered ramjets, Ling Tempko Vought, uh, late 50s, early 60s. Uh, did some ground testing, but uh, this would be a, a basically a rocket engine, a ramjet, that you'd carry aloft with a B-52, and you'd release it, and it could stay up there for a very long time. And when you needed a bomb dropped on somebody, you could <laughs> do it. Uh, you know, kind of neat, uh, I guess. But they didn't get as far as we did, and our program was canceled. And uh, so, uh, oh, uh, there's one other area where nuclear energy is, is certainly important here, and that is the uh, the uh, radioisotope thermoelectric generators. You know, we sent a, a craft past uh, Pluto. Took nine and a half years to get there. Right, right. This is a nuclear-powered uh, satellite or whatever it is, right? Well, it it was a satellite, and it, nuclear power doesn't quite. Well, I'll, I'll say it. I'll, I'll, I'll use it. I'll say it's okay to use. You'll give me partial credit. Technology. You'll give me partial credit. That's all I need. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, Radioisotopes. <laughs> Well, the thing is that most of our deep space probes, uh, I mean, stop to think about it, Pluto is so far away, the, the amount of uh, energy you get from the sun is pretty small. Right, know? exactly, yeah. So an RTG, radioisotope thermoelectric generator, has been used to power uh, loads of deep space probes, including the ones that left the solar system. They're small. I've worked with them when I was at TRW Systems. Uh, they're they're pretty neat. So that's and they use plutonium, but it's not the isotope that can be used in bombs, fortunately. <laughs> so nobody's going to go try to grab plutonium two thirty eight because, other than powering uh, radioisotope thermoelectric generators, it's not of much use. You know? Yeah. Uh, and you don't go around saying, "Hey, you want to buy some U two thirty eight or." Be you two thirty eight. I know, hope not. Yeah. No, no, not a good idea. All right. So it's illegal, uh, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Radioisotope material is not something that can just be handled and sold and stored. Uh, I wouldn't even know where to get like it. Anybody. <laughs> yeah. It ain't easy, man. <laughs> oh man. Uh, David Gerzinski asks, uh, he wants to know your opinion on Project Orion and the early cruise missile idea known as the Flying Crowbar. Well, uh, 
credit to Orion, and there is going to be an Orion rocket that's going to be sent up within the next year or two from NASA, but a different program. The early idea was to use nuclear energy for deep space propulsion to go to the stars. We'd carry along a bunch of small H-bombs and put it up, and you'd drop one out the back end, and you'd have a pusher plate. And you'd explode it, and some of the energy would push on the plate and push the rocket forward. And you've got a whole slew of these. Uh, And, gee, uh, there's so much energy. People don't have a good handle, I think, on why one would go nuclear. Well, let me give you three numbers. The power of three different bombs. A big bomb in World War II uh, released the, it was a 10-ton blockbuster. Mm. Took a big B-29 to carry it, make a big hole in the ground, and release the energy at 10 tons of dynamite. Wow. Yeah. And we dropped a lot of them. Uh, you know, people may not be aware, but during World War II, there were bombing raids where we had 500 airplanes flying at once over Europe and dropping bombs. 500 planes. Wow. So... The, but the biggest bombs were released the energy at 10 tons of dynamite. Okay, our first atomic bomb, which was set off in Trinity Site in New Mexico in, uh, what, June of 1945, uh, that released the energy of 16,000 tons of dynamite. You can see why we spent all that dough on the Manhattan Project. You go from 10 tons in one bomb of dynamite equivalent energy, <laughs> a yeah, new unit, exactly. to 16,000 tons. But we kept at it in our first H-bomb, hydrogen bomb, which was exploded in 1952. We haven't even have a name for it, Mike. Don't ask me where the mic comes from. <laughs> Uh, released the energy of 10 million tons of TNT. So from 10 to 16,000 to 10 million. And the Russians went up that uh, a few years after that, released the energy of 57 million tons of TNT. Wow. So One if you use that for weapon. you'd be doing all right in space is what you're saying. Well, what I'm saying is every two things. One, every advanced civilization is going to ask, how does that star of ours produce all that energy? And the answer, which we found out in 1938, was nuclear fusion. Uh, that's Everybody's going to look for that. What is it? I'm not saying it's the ultimate, but I'm saying all the stars in the universe produce their energy by nuclear fusion. Second thing is, it's perfectly obvious that if you want to go to the stars, there's your best energy source. Yeah. Uh, you can exhaust particles that have 10 million times as much energy as they can get in a dumb old chemical rocket. Right, exactly. It's, it's and so almost you nat- can understand. It's almost, it's almost natural. It's coming right. You can, it's there, there, the universe is showing us the way to do it. It's the sun. Well, you know? yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you caught that because some people say, well, how would they know? Well, everybody is going to look for where does the star get its energy from? You know that in the 20s we thought it was from burning chemicals? You well, know. Oh, they thought, the sun, they thought the energy from the sun was from burning chemicals? Well, uh, big theory? mass of burning gas, yeah. Oh, wow. uh, 
And it wasn't a, look, we didn't even discover the neutron until 1932. You know, they've been there all the billions of years the Earth's been around. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, there you go. So when someone tells you that the aliens can't be here, uh, tell them, uh, what about the neutrons? You know, that's what uh, yeah. I say about the people, you know, the old people, that when they discovered the new world, it's like America and all that was here all along in ancient Greek times and things. So, you know, how do we Oh, know really? I thought it didn't show up until Columbus came along. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, what about the flying crowbar? What is this thing? Do you know anything about that? I don't know if, if he's talking about the uh, uh, the link tentacle. This is a cruise missile idea known as the flying Well, it crowbar. looks uh, that does look uh, like a missile. Uh, it's a nuclear ramjet. Uh, the air comes in one end, gets heated in the reactor, and goes out the other end. Now, you have to understand something here. We're not when we say kicked out the back end. On the nuclear rocket that I worked on, the fission rockets, the exhaust temperature of the, the hydrogen comes in very cold, liquid hydrogen, close to absolute zero. And you kick it out the back end after it's been heated in the reactor, and it is going, it's at four, over 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, with jet engines, we're only talking around 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. So the fission rocket, in other words, and there's no oxidizer. Hydrogen's the lightest. It's kind of nice, isn't it? You're going to use something that's the lightest and most abundant element in the universe, hydrogen. Wherever you go, you're going to find hydrogen. Uranium, that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the heavier elements, you know. One of the heaviest elements. Uh, so, one of the li- one of the listeners says that maybe maybe he's t- the flying crowbar. Maybe he means something called the Pluto weapon. Have you heard of it? Well, that that's what I was talking about. Okay. The ramjet. The uh, name right. was was Pluto. Okay, I'm sorry. Not uh, the dog, but I'm I'm sorry. There you go. No, no, I they got things coming at me left and right here. Uh, speaking of which, that very person he's listening now, and his question is up now. Uh, he's uh, Steve Ray. Good friend, good guy. And uh, he says, since nuclear physicists must understand every element of the periodic table, please ask Dr. Friedman, which will, will, that will allow us to do the annual uh, explainer there, <laughs> which one is the yeah. best element or at least your favorite? What's your favorite element on the periodic table and why? Oh, my favorite element on the periodic table. What a strange question. Uh you know, I like uranium just because it has so many uses, uh, like for the aircraft carriers and ramjets and all kinds of things. Uh, I like plutonium because it's neat. Uh, you know, we spend a lot of effort to make it and stuff. Yeah. And because it doesn't occur naturally in nature, uranium does. Uh, but there isn't enough of it around, really. So... Uh, gee, I'd never. Th- I'll have to think about that some more. Favorite element? Which element do I love the most? <laughs> well, I figured the, like, uh, I figured the obvious answer is gold. Well, I don't have much of that. <laughs> <laughs> and, that and then the other the other joke that I thought of uh, when I read Steve's question was uh, no love for element one fifteen from Bob from Bob Lazar that. Oh my God, that's a that's a <laughs> lucky guess in a way because like I could say I I you know an alien came down and gave me element like 123 and eventually they'll get to 123 I assume so. Well, maybe <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, 115 I mean, was much more likely than 123. It's only eight away. You never you never know. <laughs> There's 
along. That's a good uh, way to put it. Uh, you know, like you said, we just started figuring this stuff out like a hundred years ago. So who knows? Who knows how many they'll wind up? Yeah, being. I, I, I'm not a lover of Element 115. <laughs> uh, I didn't think and so. And anybody who thinks you can use it for a propulsion system really has to answer a couple questions. Where do you get it? The discovery was made on the basis of four atoms of 115 that were produced in a huge accelerator operating for weeks. Four atoms. Now, if you had four followed by 20 zero, 24 zeros atoms, then maybe you could do something useful with it. The second problem is the half-life is less than two minutes. So how do you do something useful with something that's, you know, there's only half of it left after two minutes? Another two minutes and another half's gone and so forth. Exactly, you know. yeah. So it it isn't very useful. There are radioactive isotopes that have half-lives of a million years, or 10,000 years. But you can you can do something useful with those. Right. But two minutes hardly qualifies. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, Ron Ostrander uh, wants to know, a lot of interesting questions this year about sort of obscure areas, obscure topics. This one's another one. He says, uh, "Good." Ron Ostrander says, "Good health and best wishes to Mr. Friedman at the holidays." He wants to know if you're familiar with the sketchy 1970s documentary "Overlords of the UFO," which uh, features an appearance by you via film stock footage taken at some news conference or similar event. And he wants to know uh, what your impression well, of that film is. I remember, I, I can't give you specifics because it was a long time yeah, ago, yeah. but I remember uh, when it came out and I was disgusted with it, and I don't know how I wound up in that. They used some footage. Certainly I didn't intentionally get involved with that piece of junk. <laughs> it was pretty sad. At that uh, bet you it's on YouTube by now, but yeah, I've never I've never seen well, it. Well, so. probably everything else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, no, I'm not a fan of Overlords of the UFO. What, just for my edification, what was what was it? What was it like? A bad? Was it like sort of a like a? Were they trying to scare people that like the UFOs were coming to get us or something like that? Was there like a? Well, like, it, it it was as bad as that. Yeah, the whole tone was wrong about what they could do and. Uh, you know, like they're here to destroy us and all kinds of stuff like that, and uh, with nothing to back it up. My, you know, my basic rule: have facts in hand before putting mouth in gear. Exactly. And I didn't say anything that was wrong, but the, the movie certainly did. Um, Paula Summit wants to know, uh, or Paula Samet, I think I don't know, one or the other. Uh, she wants to know. Uh, your opinion on the work of Jacques Vallée, which is less nuts and bolts and more extra-dimensional. We've talked a little bit about this in the past, but... Um, well, I talked you know. to Jacques not long ago at all. And, oh, nice. Uh, we are on good terms, and uh, when I get out to San Francisco, I'll go see him. And, uh, I mean, that's one of my favorite cities anyway. I lived three, three, uh, for three years uh, 30 miles away. But, no, I think Jacques uh, did a, an awful lot of pioneering work in ufology, collecting data, and I think he's got a new book out, uh, but I haven't seen it. Uh, I'm not sure if it's very, very new, but I know he sort of put a new one out in the last few years and kind of talking a lot about the historical record in UFOs. Well, yeah, that one, no, but there's one after that. Uh, and I, Jacques, uh, we, we've seen each other, uh, we've both uh, testified uh, at that 
uh, strange conference in Saudi Arabia, for example. Oh, nice. Uh, and no, we, we, we've been friendly and so forth. But more important, Jacques is a real scientist. And the, the difference between us is my background is in advanced technology. I worked on nuclear airplanes, uh, fission rockets. I was involved in a study of fusion rockets way back. God forbid I should mention it was 1962 that I worked on He doesn't have that background in advanced technology. On the other hand, in terms of collecting reports from hither, thither, and yon, and doing a good job of it, and having the courage to deal with the astronomers. I mean, his degree was in astronomy, and he worked with J. Allen Hynek. And I had a problem with Allen. I could never get him to look at the literature about interstellar travel technology. Uh because most astronomers think that uh, you can't get here from there, so what's the point in looking? You know? Right, right. Uh, and so, uh, but Jacques is solid. He's dependable, and I've never caught him in saying something that was obviously untrue, but he was trying to get away with it. And there are a lot of people, I can't say that. I didn't catch yeah. him in that. Especially in the world you know. of uh, UFOs. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Now, you don't have to tell me what you talk about, but let, let, me, let me pose this question. When you see him nowadays uh, or talk to him, do you guys actually talk about the UFO phenomenon still? Or is it like, how's the grandkids, you know, uh, like what? what, what you mean like Jacques Vallée? Yeah, yeah. Like, cause uh, I'm just like imagining you, you guys are sort of these wizened, no offense, old uh, legends, you know. It's like, you know, Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger sitting around talking about writing songs together. Like, do you guys still talk about UFOs together? Or yes. you just kind of, oh, that must be amazing. Well, we we do talk about UFOs, and we talk about the bigger picture and, uh, you know, what's going to happen. And um, Well, uh, and there's another thing that's happened that who would have predicted that we have so much more evidence now of there being other planets out there. It wasn't too many years ago that there were people denying there were other solar systems. This oh, yeah. is the only one, you know. So uh, thanks to the Kepler and other uh, astronomical devices. Uh, but, you know, it, I'll give you an incredible statistic. Uh from the data I've been able to find, there's between 1 and 1.6 planets per star. Some might have 9. Right. Like, well, our solar system has 8 or 9 or 10 or whatever number you want to pick. But but we didn't know that. And so I, I find it so ludicrous when some of the SETI people, you know, I have to say SETI stands for Silly Effort to Investigate, you know, when when they act like, uh, there's no way you can get here. And Frank Drake once said there could be as many as eight or 10,000 places in the galaxy. Right. And now a better number would be eight or 10 billion <laughs> solar systems. I'm not saying every planet out there has life on it. It's like not every atom is fissionable, but there are enough that are to make it interesting to use it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, our whole attitude about there being other life, uh, we talk about probability. How can you assess probability when you don't have any data? I mean, if I toss a coin, it's either going to come up heads or tails, you know, one and two. But there are many other things. Where, what's the probability of our finding or them having found us? 
We don't know. You know, how many ships you're sending out per year? Maybe you get lucky. Right. What was the probability of Columbus finding a new continent? It wasn't a new continent. We just didn't know about it. Yet. Well, it's funny. I don't know if you noticed. It's like uh, it, 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 it seems like they, and by they I guess I mean mainstream science. Uh, you know, some people will take issue with that, but whatever. Uh, they, <laughs> they, um, they're almost twisting themselves into knots now as they get more information like this. Because I, I saw an article recently, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher the idea, but. Uh, butcher the details of it, but the idea is generally that, like, some statistician, statistician put together, like, an equation where it was like, it's almost certain that aliens exist, but they, but they went extinct before they could ever get to us, because, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've, like, I've seen that. Yeah, and it's like, oh, What's the geez. basis for that? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you throw darts at a dartboard with numbers on it, that's why you Right, exactly. Party, yeah. You know. like, like I said, they're twisting themselves into knots, because they're like, all right, well, how can we... They, they seem to think that if aliens were out there, they would land on a White House lawn and say, hi, Earthlings, what can we do for you? Yeah. They can't think of any other reason to come here. I, One of my books, I think I got 15 or so reasons to come here. You know? uh, they do a weekly radio show or an annual one. Idiocy in the boondocks. Here we are at Earth again this year, folks. <laughs> Well, they'd love it this year. This must be the highest-rated year they've ever had, a uh, idiot in the boondocks. <laughs> well, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, but, you know, why Why did Columbus and all those other guys uh, head west? Well, some of them went to convert the heathen. Some of them went to steal the gold. That ought to be my favorite element. <laughs> right. You know, some of them went to bring back vegetables, tobacco, tomatoes, potatoes. <laughs> we didn't have those before in, uh, in Europe. Yeah. Uh, and to get slaves, uh, to steal land, uh, to, for a penal colony. I mean, look how the first uh, Englishmen to wind up in Australia were convicts. <laughs> right. They're proud of it. So maybe Earth, the whole planet, is is a penal colony. They dumped all the bad boys and girls here. That's why we're so nasty to each other. They call it selective breeding. <laughs> we got the worst ones, don't we? <laughs> Well, I'm sure they realize this, but it's like anyone who says, why don't they land on the White House lawn, you better hope they don't, because otherwise, uh, you know, we'll, we'll end up like the Native Americans. We'll be the Native Earthlings. We'll be the people that got <laughs> wiped out by the uh, advanced culture. So, Well, yeah, I think, uh, frankly, I think the Galactic Federation probably has rules that we certainly have not accepted about not interfering with what's going on. Hmm. Rules of behavior, isn't that how why we have uh, congresses and senates? Exactly, and yeah. So forth. We civilized people make rules that they abide by that respect other people's rights. No, well, we don't see much of that happening here, do we? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And it stands to reason that, like, if there's intelligences smart enough to travel between the planets, that they that it's not the wild west out there. It's like that's, that's right. kind of funny in a way because it's like a, the human perspective on space still is that it's like the Wild West, but it's yes, yes. but it's but if you can get no out sense. there, yeah, yeah, if you can get out there, uh, you know that's that's probably why there's this tension maybe between the two, you know, between whatever's whatever the UFO is and whatever we are because it's like we don't even we're not mature enough to understand <laughs> what we're doing out there. Hey, look, when you spend a trillion dollars a year as we do on this planet for things military, 
that tells you a great deal about us because after all it's not as if there aren't people starving to death every single day yeah it tells you where our priorities are and i can't imagine any real advanced civilization accepting those as well that's the right priority see who you can kill the most or you know have the most (laughs) bombs or stuff you know uh look we've exploded two thousand nuclear weapons on this planet some people say what do you mean two thousand we haven't we have look it up uh that tells you a lot about us. Fortunately, only two on people. But Well, it's uh, funny. In a sense, it's like, not to get too philosophical, but it's like, if we could get into space as a species, I think that would end a lot of these, a lot of the conflicts in a sense, because literally the sky is the limit. You wouldn't have to be fighting over land and territory and resources yeah. anymore. It's like, it, you know, that that's, that's what we, the collective human race should be working towards, is to get... Is to expand beyond the Earth so we don't fight. Oh, come on. I want to settle Mars so I can steal the gold from there. There you go. <laughs> All right. We'll zip along to the next one because uh, okay. I could, I could, we could get into that for a while. Sean, and this one kind of jumps from that. Sean Cotts wants to know if you think it would take an undeniable event slash crisis event, like landing on the White House lawn, to persuade people that the phenomenon is worth mainstream scientific attention, or is it possible that it will eventually get funded uh, – scientific studies due to a general cultural change. I've kind of advocated that as my generation and God forbid the millennials uh, grow older, maybe there'll be a, more of a move towards it, but who knows? So that's kind of the question uh, for you. Well, I think that there are a lot of problems with recognition of alien visitations. One of them would be giving up power. There's nobody who speaks for the planet. How many people think of themselves as Earthlings as opposed to Greeks or French or Chinese or American or Canadian or whatever? We have a national identity instead of a planetary one. And we're not ready. And nobody in power, this is an observation after 82 years of being around this planet, uh, nobody in power wants to give up power, do they? No way. You know, don't, I'm going to step aside and let the the planetary go over. Ha! That'll be the day. Right, exactly. Yeah. So um, that's a major concern. Okay, so you think, yeah. All right, I'm trying to see if there's anything we missed sort of in that question. But I think, uh, I mean, we're all, we've always been waiting for that tipping point. So, you know, yeah. who knows? It's like, I feel like, I still feel like that they'll, Maybe the best workaround, if they're really trying, if they really want to advance this any further, would be a sort of find like I, as ridiculous as that whole face on Mars thing is. It's like find some old thing somewhere else where you can be like, okay, we know that this is real, but they're not going to come hurt us. Maybe who knows? You know what I mean? But, well, you know, it's kind of like when I was working on the nuclear rocket engine for uh, I worked for Westinghouse, but Los Alamos and Aerojet were also working on nuclear rocket engines, and we all successfully tested them. Uh, the thought was that these would be an upper stage to take us to Mars, and the first nuclear rocket engine upper stage would be launched in 1978 was the plan. But President Nixon canceled the program in the early 70s. Now, I don't know why he canceled the program wasn't enough money. Who knows what went on? Yeah. Maybe the Martians said, stay the heck off our planet. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, uh, who who knows? We don't know. <laughs> but what I'm saying was, 
that was what its primary use would be. Uh, would be an upper stage to set up a colony on Mars, triple a payload with a, as compared to a chemical rocket. Right. Makes it very attractive. And, uh, again, like uh, not to get too philosophical, this sort of thought just crossed my mind as we were talking. It was, you know, this idea that Sean mentions, you know, about a generational, the next generational maybe sort of uh, treat this with respect or something. It's like, uh, listen, yeah. folks, we Stan and I have been doing this show for 12 years, and uh, I had that attitude. I, I got Because I, even when I read Sean's question, I was still bullish about it. But the more I thought about it as, we, as I was ta- listening to you, you know, it's like we – I don't know, man. This gen- my generation, we didn't do anything either. It's like, <laughs> you know, well, maybe the yeah. next generation will, but I, I tell the story all the time, and I, I like Steve Bassett. I think that some of the disclosure stuff uh, went off the tracks this year because of the yeah. election, but uh, I tell this story because it's just a, a description of sort of the the hopefulness of this field and the reality of it. When I first, uh, the, the conference I first met you at, at the X conference in, in D.C. in 2004, I called to get the tickets. I talked to Steve. Uh, I'd never met him or anything like that. And and he was like, oh, you're only, well, what was that, 2004? So I must have been 25. He said, oh, you're, you're only 25? You're going to be flying to the moon. You're going to be going to Mars in, like, the next 10 years. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Folks, I ain't been to the moon, and I ain't been to Mars, and I'm going to be 40 in a couple years, and I ain't going to the moon or the Mars. So the idea that... <laughs> You know, it's this thing, this whole idea of us getting out there, or, or really, really sort of like doing that, is is moving so slowly that, you know, maybe the next. Well, I don't think the aliens want us out there. Would you want such a primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare out invading your territory? I don't think so. Yeah. If anything, they'll, they'll let us send some 3D printers out there and build a little city and give us, you know, <laughs> oh, 50, I like it. 50 I like years to, 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 till we're ready to move in. Uh, Steve Grone, he asked about the so-called disclosure movement, if it'll lead to anything. I think we pretty much covered that one just now, so we can, yeah. we'll, we'll skip that. You're putting me in a hell of a position here, but I, I have no choice. You're not going to kill Santa Claus because he doesn't exist. <laughs> really, Brian? He doesn't exist. That's right. He's not real. Oh, interesting. Interesting theory, Brian. Um, who else isn't real? Hmm? You gonna tell me that Elmo isn't real? Huh? SpongeBob? Is he not real, Brian? Is, is, is SpongeBob not there at the bottom of the ocean giving Squidward the business? Hmm? And, and what about Curious George? Huh? Does he not really exist? Hmm? Is Curious George not really out there making little boats out of newspapers that he should be delivering? Educate yourself, you fool. It's the Banal of America Audio Holiday Special, featuring Stanton Friedman. Happy Holidays! It's the one night of the year when we all act a little nicer, we smile a little easier, we share a little more. For a couple of hours out of the whole year, we are the people that we always hoped we would be. Have a Merry Christmas, everybody. William Cherry wants to know your thoughts on John Keel. I, I met John. I heard him speak. I thought that he went well beyond his data over and over again. Uh, at one point, he said the MJ-12 documents were phony because they weren't done on 8x10 paper. 
That was all they used at that time, he said. Well, I have been to 20 archives, and I'll guarantee you there was plenty of 8.5 by 11 paper being used. He yeah. had uh, Goddard doing his work near Azteco. Well, it was 300 miles from there, near Roswell, New Mexico. Uh, so, John, I don't feel got his facts straight much of the time. Right. Uh, and so I, 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 I'm not a booster there you go. Okay. Uh, Mike Church wants to know, uh, and I'm interested in this too because I've been trying to follow it, but it's tricky. Uh, he wants to know your thoughts on the EM drive and how, while it apparently works, it defies relativity, and he wants to know what you think that might mean for space exploration. What do you know about this EM drive that people are well, talking about? Well, that term, electromagnetic, uh, it's been used in, with reference to several different kinds of drives. And, for example, I have been saying, well, since at least 1968 in my congressional testimony, that between the stars I want nuclear fusion and or fission, maybe both. But when you're in a planetary atmosphere where the conditions are altogether different than they are in the empty space between stars, mm-hmm where you've got an atmosphere, you've got pressure, you've got temperature considerations, weather, and all kinds of stuff. And remember that we do have plenty of reports of huge motherships, which have small, what I call, Earth extension modules. The analogy here would be like the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier that I mentioned, uh, which can operate for 18 years without refueling. It carries 75 little airplanes that can fly for, what, two hours without refueling. Right, right. So my solution for between the stars is nuclear fusion. But within the atmosphere, uh, and the ones that crash are not the motherships, incidentally. They're this much smaller Earth excursion module. Yeah, maybe they, I believe, they would be able to cover up a mothership crash. <laughs> hardly. Uh, I think that uh, that's where we have an EM drive. I have postulated, because I've done some work on, for example, the EM submarine. That works by having electric and magnetic fields produced in an electrically conducting fluid, seawater. That salt water is a good conductor of electricity. And Westinghouse scientist, Dr. Stuart Way, actually operated a small, with a bunch of students from the University of California, Santa Barbara, a, an electromagnetic submarine. No moving parts. It was neat. Uh, and then the Japanese, Kawashima, I think, uh, also operated one, and they even used superconducting magnets. Now, I believe the, Mike is talking about this specific like EM drive that's been in the news over the last like six months. Do you know about this thing? Well, I've only heard comments that implied that, oh, this is the secret to it. What, what we got to do is use electromagnetic systems to kick particles out the back end. And yeah. what I'm saying is I don't know how that's going to work out within the atmosphere, but I do know that if you ionize the air and interact with making an electrically conducting fluid, you know, when the Apollo comes back, you've got this glow around it, because right. uh, it's really going fast, 25,000 miles an hour. Well, okay, if you have a plasma around a craft in the atmosphere as an electrically conducting fluid, you can control lift, drag, heating, sonic boom production, radar profile. Those are nice things to be able to control. And you could make right-angle turns because you can exert high and low electromagnetic forces in very short periods of time. 
So I would call that an EM drive, a plasma drive within the atmosphere. People have talked about using plasmas outside the atmosphere. You kick electrically conducting fluid out the back end of a rocket. But I like the plasma thing because it helps explain some of the things. Well, I'll give you an example. Talking to a guy who was at a Nike uh, missile site many years ago, and they have radar, you know, to detect incoming Russian missiles, supposedly. And they pick up something on the radar, and he's outside, and he's talking to them, and he's seeing it. It changes color, and it off, goes off the radar. And yeah. that would make sense if you've got an electrically conducting fluid around the craft. You pick up the guy's radar signal, and you say, oh, we've got to change the characteristics of that plasma so it becomes totally absorbing to that particular frequency. Hmm. Well, I had a second story in Texas, a military group, radar group. Uh, they pick up the UFO, and suddenly it's off. It's not on the screen anymore. And the boss comes in and says, hey, change frequency. They change frequency, and there it is again. Uh, so it makes sense that you sense what the other guy is sending your way, and you adjust the properties of your cloak, if you will. <laughs> this is a good way to say cloaking, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so I consider that part of an electromagnetic drive. And the submarine did work. Uh, you know, we haven't built any because Stuart didn't want to get involved in military stuff. And it would have cost a lot of money to develop it and so forth and so on. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, so there are a lot of things going on that are different, if you will. And that's what you've got to look for. Okay. Uh, Marco Withrow, uh, he says he saw an interview with you many years ago where you said in the beginning of your interest in the subject, we've, we've, yeah, you, you've said this many times on this show, that you read a few books but you weren't convinced. Then you read more books and you still weren't convinced he wants to know what was the one thing that pushed you towards the ETH rather than some other explanation. He thinks it may have been the Hill case, but I think it was no. Project Blue Book Special Report 14, right? Special Report 14 was the thing that yes. really shocked me. Uh, I'd read all these books, and I was kind of, well, I don't know what's going on here. And then I found that uh, at the University of California Berkeley Library. And it was surprising on a couple of grounds. One... I'd already read 10 books, and none of them had mentioned it. Uh, and two, I found tables, graphs, charts, data. I'm a data hound. And evalue quality evaluations and cross-comparisons between unknowns and knowns. And I also found, and this shocked me, that the Secretary of the Air Force lied through his teeth at the press release that went out. So that was two things together, all kinds of data that I hadn't known existed and none of the books mentioned. And secondly, clearly intentional lying by the Secretary of the Air Force. He said, on the basis of this report, we believe that no objects such as those popularly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3% could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. Well, the fact is the unknowns were 21.5%, not 3%, and they were completely separate from the category listed as insufficient information. By definition, <laughs> that really made me angry to be lied to by the Secretary of the Air Force. So that was the thing that pushed me off the teeter-totter. I knew where I was going now. <laughs> you know? There you go, yeah. 
So that that was it. I, I didn't see a saucer. Nobody I knew very well had seen a saucer. <laughs> did we ever get to the bottom? I know I asked you a few years ago, but did did we ever find out what happened with Project Blue Book 13 that uh, apparently we don't No, know I've heard there with. are different explanations. I, I love the one that says, well, you know, it's like some buildings don't have a 13th floor. They were superstitious. Well, that's absolute nonsense as far as I'm concerned. I worked on a program where I put out two final reports. One was unclassified and one was very highly classified, and I don't even have a copy myself. Uh, so it would be perfectly natural for 13 to have the good stuff. Right. Uh, and remember that uh, General Bolander's comment about reports which could affect national security are not part of the Blue Book system. And I think they were part of Majestic 12. And they ain't telling us anything about Majestic 12. Right. <laughs> you may have noticed. <laughs> and, and if people say, oh, that was a bunch of nonsense, read my book, Top Secret Magic, M-A-J-I-C. There you go. Um, and, uh, okay, so we still I, don't I hope know. to convince you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fantastic book, folks. I I, I love all the books. Uh, and I'm looking forward to checking out Fact Fiction and Flying Saucers. Uh, Wayne Nunn, he wants to know uh, your opinion on the ancient astronaut theory. That's very popular. Uh, it's grown very popular in the last you know, so, so few years. Yeah. Well, I, I think as soon as you say, hey, it doesn't take very long to go from being primitive to having H-bombs, you know, uh, look back 120 years and say how the world has changed. Uh, and when you figure the planet's been around for four over 4 billion years and the universe for 13 billion years, it would astonish me if we were the most advanced civilization. Uh, you know, because it didn't take that long to go from the caveman to uh, the H-bomb. Right. Uh, so I think others, because we know that there are stars older than the sun and we know that therefore there are planets much older than Earth, that if life... You know, even if it only started a few places and they colonized other places and they colonized other places. So I think that it would be astonishing if there weren't advanced civilization checking us out a thousand, ten thousand years ago. You'd want to keep tabs on the neighborhood because you want to know when they reached that fusion point. Right. You know, because then they are a threat to off Earth civilizations. And I presume that it's the duty of every planetary government uh, to be wary of threats from others who have H-bombs. Hmm. Yeah. You know, they're going to say, we don't, we don't care if what's going on out there. Because they all would know that once you realize that fusion exists, that you could use it for propulsion. So maybe it takes you know, 60 years. Big deal. For 100 <laughs> years. That's nothing. Right. Um, and also, Wayne, I'll throw it. I usually I, I don't like people that send two questions, but I will because I, I like this one. He wants to know uh, what you think of uh, Walter Bosley's work regarding the Sonora Aero Club. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Walter's uh, stuff or the. Uh, do you know about the Sonora Aero Club? Aero Club. Uh, Wasn't that the 1897 stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you, have you have you put much thought into that? Well, I did some looking at it, and it was clear that there were people thinking about flight back then. That was before the Wright brothers. But uh, So I'll put that in my gray basket. There you go. I don't know what to think about them. Maybe. I, I don't 
say that, oh, clearly that was alien. I'm not saying that at all. Yeah, how would anyone, yeah. <laughs> how Big would, jump. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, let me see. Gracie Jane Gollinger. Uh, this is a, an incredibly specific question. I'm wondering if you'll uh, – I'll be thrilled if you act, if this resonates with you, but we'll see. He seems uh, – Gracie seems to recall that you had a long career in, nuclear, in the nuclear energy business. Obviously, we've, we've talked about that yes. for 12 years. Uh, could, could you discuss – 14. What, <laughs> no, uh, no 12, well, uh, yeah, you and I have. Yes, absolutely. Could yeah. you <laughs> – Right. Uh, could you discuss what you know about the Westinghouse Waltz Mill site near New Stanton, PA, which she presumes is a, co- a coincidental name, New Stanton, PA, uh, specifically <laughs> the nuclear research and subsequent mishandling of nuclear materials therein? This is at the uh, the Westinghouse Waltz Mill near New Stanton, Well, PA. yeah, I, which, I, when I worked on the nuclear rocket engine, this would be from 1966 through 68, uh, headquarters technically was Waltz Mills, yes. And I don't think we mishandled anything. Uh, you know, we didn't get support to to build the actual, to, to build a, a working system besides the original test vehicle, the NRX A6. We didn't test it at Westinghouse, though. We tested it out at the nuclear test site in Nevada. Right near where they test atom bombs, not far from Area 51. Right. Uh, so I worked. Uh, Waltz Mills was the headquarters for Westinghouse Astronuclear Lab, and I remember Pittsburgh had a lot of different Westinghouse divisions. The Union. Uh, some had to do with submarines. We didn't, but uh, and aircraft carriers, nuclear powered, and uh, nuclear power reactors. Westinghouse is one of the major manufacturers of them. So I don't think we miss our group didn't mishandle anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, that she in addition sort of the little add on to that. Um yeah, I don't know where she's getting this subsequent mishandling of nuclear materials. So, uh maybe that happened after you guys left town, but he he well, she wants to know if if you think there's any connection between the the Waltz Mill and any paranormal activity that's happened around Westmoreland County. It's sort of this whole separate idea, I think, in a way where it's like the 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 visitors, let's say, have an interest in in the nuclear aspect of things, which seems to be the case. Well, I, I certainly I, I I don't deny that there are many examples. Of, well, look at Robert Hastings' work, for right, example. exactly. That's what I was, what I was alluding to. And uh, Mr. Salas with the nuclear tip missiles and stuff. Uh, I don't see any connection between paranormal and nuclear, other than a lot of people don't understand both of them. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. All right. Kirk Walker wants to know if you think the Cash Landrum UFO could have been an experimental nuclear aircraft. I've no. a very nuclear, very nuclear evening tonight. Well, they don't often get a chance to talk to some nuclear physicist who's crazy enough to look at the paranormal. <laughs> Exactly. There you go. So you, so you don't think that was – you said no? I would kind of talk to you over there. I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, it was one of my first thoughts when I heard about the case. I talked to John Schusler about it. He's a good, solid engineer uh, from McDonnell Douglas. And, uh, and just in going over the case, uh, it is a, a, an idea that suggests itself because of the radiation damage to the cash and land room. Well, and, and the grandson, but Colby. Uh, but 
I don't think it was. I presume the question has to do with whether it was our nuclear-powered craft. I think that's the implication. Yeah. Yeah. He says. I think yeah. he says experimental. Yeah. 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 And I. I don't think so. I. They may have. Look, it wouldn't be surprising if they were using nuclear energy. It's a great way to put a lot of energy in a small space. We've already gone over that. You know. Uh, when a bomb gives you 16,000 tons of dynamite energy release instead of 10, uh, gee, that's kind of neat, isn't it? <laughs> you know? So it wouldn't be surprising. Uh, but I don't, never did feel that there was a connection there. Okay. Uh, let's see. We're heading towards the home stretch here. So, all right. Uh, Carl DeMarco would like to know, what your favorite scenario would be for Joe Nichols and Michael Shermer, who are modern skeptics, uh, to finally have to admit the existence of UFOs, and it would and would it involve any probes? <laughs> probes of them? Yes, like maybe, maybe they'll get abducted. I'll, I'll go to the <laughs> I'll go the, well, the the nicest route. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Look, I debated Michael Shermer on Coast to Coast Radio, and I won the debate 80% for me, 20% for him. He didn't know a damn thing about flying saucers. He had a lot of notions that he came up with, but nothing to do with the facts, the data, the solid information. Now, Joe Nickel, uh, some of his explanations for cases are just outrageous. Uh, what do you expect from a professor of English? Uh, which is what he was. He wasn't a scientist. I should say is, as far as I know, he's still alive. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, I I wouldn't call him a skeptic. I'd call him a debunker. There's a difference. The skeptic says, I don't know. Exactly. The debunker yeah. says, I do know. Ain't nothing to that, man. Right. There's a difference in attitude. Don't The four rules for debunkers, don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. What the public doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them. You never hear any of these guys talk about Blue Book Special Report 14. The, the third rule is that if you can't attack the data, it's easier. Nobody will know the difference anyway. And fourth, do your research by proclamation. Investigation is too much trouble, and nobody will know the difference. So debunkers have a, a code of... I'll, put quotation marks around ethics yeah, yeah. behave unethically because that's what matters you can get your point across easier that way if you don't let the facts get in the way exactly exactly hey folks i read you a quote there earlier from a from a, a contemporary of joe nichols and michael Shermer, or someone who fancies themselves a contemporary and you saw how completely off base and uh, wrong uh, that was about UFOs yes. and fake news. It's like if he, and, and, and and like Stan says, spoken from a place of proclamation, where you and me and the listeners, we know that's complete malarkey, and so so it's just yeah. uh, it's maddening. I I I can't I I I salute your patience over all these years because anytime I you know that thing was I saw that little quote today and it was sticking in my craw all day and. Uh, I can't imagine how you've had to put up with these clowns well, for all these years. Let, let me make a point about that. Uh, people think I must get a hard time from my audiences. I don't. I've given over 700 lectures, 50 states, 10 provinces, 19 other countries. I was in Bulgaria not long ago, a nice. hotbed of ufology. <laughs> nice, Bulgaria. Uh, yeah, uh, I've been in Hungary, too, you know. <laughs> Uh, Hungary? Is that a country? No, I don't think so. <laughs> but 
my point is, I am not a masochist. I don't do this. I've had 11 hecklers, two of whom were drunk, uh, in more than 700 lectures all over the place. And many of these are professional groups, mostly college audiences, but sections of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, engineering societies, hither, thither, and yon. And uh, I don't get a hard time from people. Uh, they listen to the facts. They admit that they hadn't read this or that report. I'm a little sneaky. I ask them after I talk about five large-scale scientific studies, uh, how many of you have read this? But let me give you a, a results of a little experiment that happened in a class on campus with the professor's cooperation. I wanted to ask the question of the class, two questions, but I wanted them to vote with their eyes closed, and he would count the votes. Not me. He would. Two questions. How many of you think most people don't believe in flying saucers? And how many of you do believe that some flying saucers are alien spacecraft? Amazingly, it was 80% yes for both. Hmm. So most people believe in flying saucers. They believe that most other people don't. So it's not surprising that I don't get a hard time from my audiences because I present facts and data and solid information. And so where's the problem, you know? I'm a scientist. I present information, not exactly. misinformation, which the debunkers present all the time. Yeah, That's exactly. why I win debates. You know, I won the debate with Seth Shostak. I got 57% of the vote. He got 33%, and 10% said, oh, I don't know. Uh, he didn't, hadn't looked at any of the large-scale scientific studies. And if you haven't, you're not entitled to say you have a scientific opinion. There you go. Uh, Bernie Mooney, we kind of already covered this question, but I like Bernie. He's a good friend, so we'll sort of like get it out there. He says, if UFOs are nuts and bolts crafts, why do you think after 60-plus years they keep playing cat and mouse and just don't land and introduce themselves? I mean... Well, I don't think we're worth talking to, and we don't know that they haven't landed and introduced themselves. Uh, uh, there's a good story that Art Campbell has looked at about Ike supposedly playing golf in Atlanta, and his plane took him, while he was supposedly playing golf, to Alamogordo, New Mexico, at Holloman Air Force Base, and they parked at one side of the field, and there was a UFO at the other side, and they got together. And Art does some pretty good research. He's talked to more than one crew member of that plane. So they may very well have, but they recognize uh, that things aren't going to change here just because they're coming here. Right. Uh, they're here for their purposes, I think. Uh, it's like how they interfere with uh, nuclear tip missiles. Uh, they're not uh, trying to help us in that sense. Uh, hey, guys, we'll show you how to do these things right. There are probably rules about that. I really think there is a galactic federation, and I think as in any sensible body of beings within with minds, there are rules of behavior. We certainly haven't demonstrated that we're willing to tolerate other people's behavior very much. Exactly. Uh, all right, we're down to the final three here. Uh, Red Pill Junkie, who's a fantastic writer and, and thinker online. Uh, I don't know if you've met him yet, but he's a great guy. Uh, he, he asks, uh, where do you think the best place in the solar system would be to look for organic life? Beside Earth, obviously. Well, I'd give a shot at Mars, but uh, I think there are uh, probably uh, 
I'll call it alien societies that might have other bases in the solar system. I don't know where they are. I don't have a good way to look. Mm. Um, so I don't know. Just to piggyback on that thing, what do you think of this Proxima B discovery? Because isn't that right in the wheelhouse of the star mm-hmm. map? Well, Ish. not really. Okay. Uh, no, I, I I like Zeta Reticuli better. I thought it was in Zeta Reticuli. I was under the impression it was in uh, one of the two. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Reticuli is a southern sky star. All right, I'll I'll Google it while you answer the next question, and I'll get you the. the <laughs> did you hear? Did you read the news about this Proxima B uh, planet they found? Uh, I. Red, is that the one that is uh, not too different in size and around the star uh, from the Earth and not uh, the, where its star is not too different from the sun? Right, right. It's like a super – it's a very Earth-like planet that they – they're very – it's like well, the Well, yeah, a couple times found. heavier and so forth. Yeah. Uh, it's an Alpha Centauri. Look, I'm sorry. Yeah. So it's like, I, I thought so, and that that's different. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, but – uh, we don't know unless you have information on, say, a couple of dozen particular solar systems. Our notions about what it takes for life to establish itself someplace, they may come from another place and colonize and create conditions. I mean, look at Las Vegas. There was no way living there a hundred years ago, was there? Uh, or Los Angeles four hundred years ago? Right. You know, uh, thinking beings can establish suitable places for residence uh, with a little effort. We do it all the time. Mm. I mean, uh, think about it. The, the pilgrims, uh, did they come to a city? No, they had <laughs> help from the natives. <laughs> exactly, yeah, that's true. Uh, Curtis Scarrow wants to know your your knowledge or views of current quantum physics, Moore's Law, and simulation theory. Jeez, Curtis, I mean, come on. Uh, do you have any, well, thoughts, the only do you have any one, thoughts on those things? <laughs> yeah, about Moore's Law, I do have a thought. Uh, Moore was the head of a big company that was uh, crucial in the uh, microelectronics business. And he decided in the mid-60s, after checking things out, that, holy cow, it looks like the number of transistors you can fit on a chip, microchip, <laughs> was doubling every year or two which doesn't sound like much, but if you do that 10 times, wow. And that's gone on for more than 40 years. And some people are thinking it's leveling off now. But my basic view is that technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. The future is not an extrapolation of the past. You have to change how you do things. Right. You know, lasers aren't just better light bulbs. So, yeah, they produce light, but uh, different technology. So I think Moore's Law has been a guiding light for a lot of people recognizing that we're, we're going to find out things that we don't yet know, and we'll get smarter, yeah. uh, more more technologically advanced, if you will. And I don't talk about quantum physics. That's not my bag. All right. Uh, Red Sun Superman is the final question of the night. Red Sun Superman. I just had his gallbladder removed, so get well soon, uh, Red Sun Superman. Uh, He'd like to know how many astronauts you've had conversations with, uh, assuming that you've spoken to some over the years. I've spoken to several. uh, um, Gordon Cooper and Bill Anders uh, and the second man to walk on the moon. 
Uh, we did a couple of television shows, as a matter of fact. Uh, and I, I, I have great admiration for the astronauts. And it was very interesting to me. I knew Bill Anders before he became an astronaut. He was working on nuclear systems for space. Oh, wow. And we were uh, both chairing sessions at a meeting of the American Nuclear Society in the late 60s. Uh, and we got to talking, and we talked for a couple hours just about UFOs. And he bought copies. I was going to be giving a lecture. I was still working for Westinghouse. I was giving a lecture on the way home. And uh, he bought copies of everything I had with me. But when I asked him, I understand that there have been sightings by astronauts that couldn't be explained. And the way he answered was something to the effect that, well, I, I don't think there were any sightings that couldn't be explained. But he said it in such a way that I felt I was touching on classified matters and I didn't have a need to know for them. And you don't intrude in those situations. Right, right. I respect other people's security clearances, yeah, and I wouldn't yeah. have told him stuff that was classified, uh, you know, that he didn't have a need to know for. So I thought he was being very cautious. Now, he was on that mission, Anders, Borman, and Lovell, that went around the moon but didn't land. Mm. So uh, he later became a real wheel in general dynamics, I think it was. I have the greatest respect for the astronauts. They're the best of the best. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so uh, I've been impressed. I've never indicated that they were giving me a hard time about flying saucers. They were cautious in what they said, but I expect that. Yeah, exactly. So they have my respect. And, I mean, I'm sure some of them said some snarky things at times, you know, maybe to the media. I was assuming just because of the way sure. things are. But it's like they never, they never pulled the kind of stunts that these skeptics and the debunkers do. You know what I mean? No. They didn't. You know, they didn't make things no. up or, or, uh, you know, personally attack people and stuff. So that no. should tell people a lot. Um, well, folks, I, this is like I'm telling you, this is a magical episode every year because we just did all of the questions and we came in right <laughs> at the 90 minutes. So you have and, talent, man. <laughs> Dude, it's all you, man. Twelve years. We we, we got a rhythm going. We should, <laughs> we're gonna have to do it again next year. Uh, I'll look forward to it. Absolutely. Now the new book is Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers: The Truth Behind the Misinformation, Distortion, and Derision by Debunkers, Government Agencies, and Conspiracy Con Men. I love it. I love the title. And you can get it at Amazon and and whatever bookstores remain out there, uh, folks. Or still, from me directly. Go oh. to my website www.stantonfriedman.com I autograph everything I send out and the books by Kathleen Martin and myself, we have three of them they're all signed by both of us nice alright, well folks go over and get those if you can and uh, if you haven't got them already, definitely go and get them I'm going to be picking uh, picking the new one up very very soon and wh what do you have on tap uh, for 2017? Uh, I know you well, obviously I'm, Roswell, the big Roswell 70th, and I'm going to try and get out the there big, this time for it. So. Yes, it is the big Roswell 70th. Also, I'll be at the International UFO Congress in February. Oh, nice. In uh, Phoenix. I'll be, uh, for the first time ever, in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, wow. at the big conference. Uh this is the first time they've invited me. <laughs> what can I say? I'll also be speaking in Mexico, Puebla, outside Mexico City. Uh, and I'll be 
putting on my website uh, a list of all the places I'm Absolutely. speaking. Any exotic? Uh, any? He said Bulgaria. He said you were in Bulgaria. Any uh, new exotic locations on the horizon? Uh, uh, no. Wouldn't it be nice to speak in Ant? No, it wouldn't be nice to speak in Antarctica because there's nobody there to listen. <laughs> Have you ever been to Iceland? That'd be a good place for you. No, I haven't been to Iceland. Uh, I've spoken in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah. And in that. Turkey. How was? Well, let's let's just jump to this just quickly before I let you go because I love hearing sort of the personal part of this. How? What, what was it like going to Bulgaria? What was that experience? I mean, because I, I haven't been to the moon, Mars, and I probably won't be making it to Bulgaria either, folks. So, well, I was, was in Sofia, like? which is a big city, and the sponsoring org, the guy was a professor and uh, member of the Bulgarian uh, Academy of Sciences. Wow. And so, and there were several good papers by PhDs there. They translated, so I, I can say they were good papers because I heard the translation of them. Uh, and they translated me to Bulgarian, and uh, it was interesting. There wasn't a huge crowd because apparently he got a grant to set this up, which nice. was believe. Yeah. So, wow. uh, it look, Bulgaria, like every place else, people are interested in flying saucers. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, they joke like how the, you know, culturally things shift to different, uh, you know, like how some places, I hate to use the expression, this, so like behind the times, you know what I mean? How like yeah. David Hasselhoff's huge in Germany or whatever. It's like there's places around the world where they're, they're still, they're just starting to kind of get into this stuff where we were like 20, 30 years ago. So you know. I was well received there and I haven't had a problem anywhere, you know, even Saudi Arabia, a nice Jewish boy in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bit of a problem. There you go. And the Roswell 70th, of course, uh, do you expect, you know, uh, there's going to be a, and you're going to be slammed, I'm sure, with media, you know, you're going to be all over the place. Do you expect anything, is it just going to be a sort of another, um, you know, revisiting and file footage and stock footage thing? Is it, you think we're going to get anything out of this this year? Is there gonna be anything? I don't know. Uh, I was surprised uh, when I was there for the 50th anniversary. Uh that uh, there were over 300 uh, journalists there. Mm. So I certainly expect that this is going to be very well attended. And uh, I don't expect any breakthroughs, but how how do you expect, by definition, you know, a breakthrough is something you don't expect. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. Something different. So I'm looking forward to it. They they like me in Roswell. I like them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I I mean, I do. Uh, Roswell is... A town, the museum has been, it's one of the biggest tourist attractions in New Mexico. And that's despite the fact that when they started off, there were people who said, you want us to be the UFO cop crazy? Uh, well, a different tune now. Uh, certainly, yeah. they are. Well, if they haven't people given you come the there with their city. families. <laughs> if they haven't given you the key to that city, then... Uh... <laughs> they, they, well, they look, have. They I'm need not, to build a statue to Stan Freeman in Roswell. Can we all agree on that? I think. <laughs> that, I'm I mean, in the Roswell you, UFO Hall of Fame. <laughs> you, well, hey, I've said it before on the show. You need your own wing at this rate. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, well, listen, I I can't thank you enough. I had a, a blast. I haven't I haven't done a lot of shows this year, and and doing this show lights the fire inside of me again that I need to be doing more programs. Good. So uh, I had so much fun talking to you again, Stan, and it's been great. It's my pleasure, Tim. I really enjoyed uh, dealing with you because you're so knowledgeable. Not everybody who interviews me is very knowledgeable. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so thank you. That means a lot, man. Thanks a lot. 
Uh, we'll have a happy holidays, and uh, I hope all the listeners do as well. And hopefully I'll see you in Roswell. If not, I'll see you somewhere else down the line in okay. 2017. Thank Good. you very much. Good night. Thank you. Bye. Well, there you go, folks. That was Stan Friedman, the 12th annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. Uh, just unbelievable. I had so much fun tonight. That was awesome. Uh, just just great. Like I said to Stan just now, I haven't done too many shows this year, as I'm sure all of you know, but uh, I was I was really loving that. I was loving that conversation and uh, loving all those different roads we went down. So uh, who knows? Well, I know we'll be doing another show in the next couple of weeks. I know that because we got one more traditional uh, I guess you could call it a holiday. One more traditional episode coming up in a couple of weeks. That's the annual uh, autopsy of the year with Greg Bishop, where we dissect the year. And what a year it's been, 2016. So well, I tried to stay as far away from politics as I could with Stan tonight because people are tired of that, and we didn't want to sully the uh, the holiday special with that. But we'll definitely be getting into that sort of topics uh on the 2016 year in review with Greg Bishop in a couple of weeks. I can't tell you when it'll be, but I talk to Greg Bishop probably two, three times a week nowadays. So we'll, uh, we'll figure out when we can do it. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be a real barn burner. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about all the crazy stuff that's happened in the past year and where things are going. Um, I've had my finger on the pulse of paranormal news more than I ever have in my entire life uh, this past year. So, Uh, I'll have a lot to say, and I'm sure Greg will as well. So stay tuned to Banal of America, and especially Banal of America on Facebook, because sometimes I post the news there rather than than on the website. Sometimes it takes me a couple days, you know. So next thing you know, like tonight I didn't post the news about this show going live until like 20 minutes before the show went live. I don't know what good that does anybody (laughs) out there. But that's just sort of the nature of the beast. It's been a, an absolutely crazy year. And uh, we'll have the year in review next week, or not next week, within the next couple of weeks. Who knows? Hopefully by, by you know, within the first, like, five days of 2017. Or uh, if not then, yeah, I'd say that's probably pretty accurate, yeah. Maybe the second, I'm thinking. That kind of could be nice. But i got to talk to Greg. Um, let me see. Let me run down the list of folks who submitted questions so we can make sure to thank them. Tim, Lobo, David, Steve, Ron, Paula, Sean, Steve, William, Mike, Marco, Wayne, Gracie, Kirk, Carl, Bernie, Pill Junkie, Curtis, and Red Sun Superman. Thank you to everybody who submitted questions on the program uh, tonight. I really do appreciate it. Fascinating questions. Uh... I, I don't even have time to do a show in general, so I shouldn't even say things like this, but I would love to someday sit down and collect all of these questions that we've posed to Stan over the years and put them together in something so people could get their hands on this because we've, we've got to have presented him with over 100 questions at this point in the last 12 years Uh on just about every possible subject. I think if I did have it in my hands right now, I could probably turn to a page and tell you what Stan Freeman says about Bigfoot, because I'm sure we've asked him about it here on the show. Um, 
So, yeah, I would love to do that. But as I said, I barely have time to do my own show. And I'll kind of I want to address a lot of that, I guess, on the uh, on the year in review because we'll close out what has been a a very weird, tumultuous year here for Banal of America Audio uh, 2016. And I'm really hoping that we can make a real fresh start at things in 2017 as we kick off what I announced uh, on the Steve Bassett episode will be the final season of Banal of America Audio coming in January 2017. BOA Audio Season 10, we're going to say goodbye to the seasonal format. We've kind of I don't even know. I wouldn't even say outgrown it at this point. It's like a, it's like an old pair of pants that our ankles are sticking out. That's how, that's how long in the tooth the uh, seasonal format has become. I mean, look at this. We're doing the 12th annual holiday special, and at the same time, we're getting ready to do season 10. That's how crazy this is. Some of these seasons stretch over years at a time, and that doesn't really jive with me. It drives me crazy. I have like OCD about these things. So we're gonna wrap it up on a nice bow with season 10, and then who knows what's going to happen. Maybe I'll sit down and put together that book of Stan Friedman questions. Maybe I'll write a different book. i got a bunch of book ideas I've been wanting to do, but I never had the time, and uh, now I have time. But I want to wrap up season 10 first and then see what happens. And for the folks who are like, oh, no, you're not going to do your show anymore, believe me, I'm not going anywhere. We're going to reinvent uh, and shed the seasonal format Maybe even uh, shed the name. Who knows? We're going to do something different. So it's time to do something different. But before we can do anything different, we have to close the book on the BOA audio adventure that has been going on for the last 12 years now, 10 seasons. Unbelievable. So that's going to be in January. But first, in a couple of weeks, the uh, incomparable marathon man, Greg Bishop, will be on the show uh, for his easily record-breaking umpteenth appearance on the program to wrap up 2016 to grouch about things i'm sure him and i will have a mutual grouch session which is always fun and uh and 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 absolutely positively piss someone off so so you have that to look forward to as well that'll be in a couple of weeks like i said stay tuned it'll be live i'll try and announce it closer to uh when we actually have it uh all set up and uh i guess that's it so with that said, thank you so much, folks, for for joining us here on the 12th annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. Uh, I got a little choked up at the end. Stan, he's just absolutely amazing, and I hold him in such high regard, and I was just blown away by his kind words there at the end of the show. He is he's the man, folks. I really do. I love the guy to death. I think he's the greatest UFO researcher that ever lived, the greatest UFO advocate, because that's really what this is all about, trying to advocate for people to look at this crazy subject. And I think he is the best that ever lived. I don't even think there's any argument. So thank you to him for coming on the show. Absolutely. Just, I really, uh, I really love this holiday special. And I really appreciate all the folks who have made this a part of their holiday traditions. And uh, it really means a lot to me. So I hope everybody out there has a awesome, uh, fantastic holiday season. And you'll be hearing from me in a couple of weeks with Gentleman Greg Bishop for the Year in Review. Thank you, everybody. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Holidays. And good night.